You can be seated. Good morning to you. Hey, somebody even said my name. Good morning. My, my name is Brad. In case, for those of you that don't know, uh, I'm one of the leaders here. It is my honor to speak with you this morning. Um, before we dive into that, I have uh, two quick announcements to make for you. Number one, it, we uh, want to welcome you if you are visiting our church for the first time. If you are, uh, we're not going to make you do anything, stand up, or give a dissertation about where you've been the past five years of your life. Here's all I would do, or all I would ask you to do if you are new to our church. If you could just find the courage to, when we finish, go back to that counter that's right out there. We call that our information booth. Go to that counter, and we will lavish you with gifts to try to encourage you to think that coming here was a good idea and that you might actually come back and join us. We, we got books and certificates for coffee and things like that. Go back there. We will try to get your information so that we can spam you ruthlessly after you provide it to us. But in all reality, the goal is to, to try, if you're at that point, if you're at that place, we want to try to connect you to our church. And that means we kind of got to know who you are. So go back to that info booth um, and do that if you are new. The other announcement, real quickly, uh, VBS is upon us. Woohoo! VBS is a big deal for our church, primarily because it's one of the few times during the year where we throw massive uh, amount of resources and energy and effort on trying to have something that the community can come take a part in. And so uh, in order to do that, we need a lot of people to help. We're still looking for some volunteers. Uh, if you are even thinking about the possibility that you might be able to help out in some way, shape, or form, you can either go back there and get some information from the info booth, hence the name, in case you were not picking that up, or you can go onto our website, sbctrucky.com, and uh, sign up there, find out a little bit more information about VBS. That's where you can sign your kids up to go if you haven't already done so. Um, if you already have signed up as a volunteer, uh, not this week, uh, which is good because you would have already missed it. But next week, starting next week, in between the two services, we will have a 10 o'clock meeting, and we would ask that if you are going to volunteer for VBS, if you could please put on your calendar or type into your brain or tattoo on the inside of your eyelids, whatever it is that you do to remind yourself that next week, 10 o'clock in between services, we've got a VBS volunteer meeting. So when is it? Oh, that was not resounding. Uh, it is, it is next week, so let's try it again. When is it? Good, good. At what time? Now we're getting there. Some people are just trying to be confusing for the sake of confusion. Uh, 10 o'clock, starting next week. Uh, I feel like praying. Would that be okay? I'd like to pray. <clears throat> God, I thank you for whatever it is that you've brought us through to get us here to now. Uh, and I recognize that you must be here for this time to actually be useful. And so we beg your presence. Lower yourself to be with your people and fill us uh, with an understanding of your word that we might serve you better. Amen. Uh, I'm going to use a passage that we're not going to talk a ton about as our jumping off point, but uh, if you did not bring a Bible with you, uh, and you want to join me in that jumping off point or in any of the other texts, go ahead and raise your hands. We've got some fantastic looking people in the back that will put a Bible in that hand if you want to use that Bible. If you like that Bible and you don't have one, keep it. Don't give it back. We'd rather you have the Bible and read the Bible uh, than be afraid to not 
give it back, or I said that wrong. I ended up even having to take use of one because I brought my, like, micro Bible, and I was trying to read a passage, and I couldn't read it. I'm too old. And so one of our fabulous-looking ushers brought me a Bible to use. Many people wanting the Bible. This is an exciting moment. Uh, there's still some hands over here, too. I might give you—I won't give you my micro Bible because it can't be read. Uh, but we're going to uh, go to Matthew 16. Once you get that Bible, or if you already have one, go to Matthew 16. This is just going to be our jumping-off point. Matthew 16 is where we're going to start. Don't be afraid to use the table of contents, but it's the uh, first book of the New Testament. In uh, Matthew 16, we're going to start in verse 13 as our jumping off point this morning. Matthew 16, starting in 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples... Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Jesus is referring to himself by that title, Son of Man. So he's essentially asking them, who are people saying that I am? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter musters up the courage and replies, You are the Christ, son of the living God. You probably waited for Jesus' response because every once in a while, Peter would say things and they get yelled at afterwards. But good news for Peter, Jesus answered him and said, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, You are Peter. The word there that he uses is Petros, which is Greek for rock, so that you can kind of check the wordplay he uses here. You are Petros. You're Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. If you haven't picked up by now or you've never heard me speak before, I'm kind of interactive, and I like to ask questions, and I actually want you to answer these questions. Look at this text and tell me, who builds the church? Oops, somebody just jumped right in. Who builds the church? Christ does. Jesus builds the church, right? Okay, so just in case we had a little bit of confusion during first service, so I'll clarify. The answer to the following questions is all no, okay? Do, do your pastors build your church? Good, good. Do your leaders like me build your church? No. Does the community of Truckee build your church? No. Okay, so now we're away from the no answers. Go back. Who builds the church? You know, as I was getting ready a couple of weeks ago to try to speak on this message, Jesse, uh, Jesse told me, I just want you to talk about whatever it is you want to talk about. Most of the fact is that Jesse wants to be, he's trying to set a new world record for the longest amount of time spent to speak in the book of Ruth. So he didn't want me to like somehow jump in on the glory of that record. So he wanted me to speak about something else. And And uh, I I tripped across a passage that I'm going to share with you and will be the main idea uh, for our morning. But as I started to try to ask myself, if Christ doesn't build the church, then what— I'm sorry, if Christ builds the church, then what is our role? What's my role as a leader? See, we don't build. Instead, we have the responsibility of maintaining the building grounds. We have the responsibility to keep them free— of toxic chemicals. Now, 
We have to ask ourselves, what is it that causes the toxic chemical dump? Let's go over to one more passage before we actually launch into our passage. Go over to John 17. John 17. If you're using one of these Bibles that was put in your hand, it's on page 903. John 17. Starting in verse 20, you, my friends, you, yes, you, sitting in those gray chairs, you make an appearance in the Bible. It's your time to shine. Jesus actually talks about you in the Bible. Let me show you what I mean. Verse 20. Jesus has been in the midst of praying, and he's been praying about the disciples and what they would do. But in verse 20, he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Stop there for a moment. If you believe in Christ this morning, friends, you are part of a chain that has been going on through hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of people passing the word on that came to you. So Jesus is praying for you in this passage. Let's see what he prays for. That they may all be what? One. What kind of oneness? Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that, why do we need oneness? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. I need you to recognize something. The point at which you finally make an appearance of the Bible, Jesus prays for your oneness. Why? Because the oneness of a church, and when I keep saying this throughout the morning, I don't just mean Sierra Bible Church. I mean the capital C Church, Christians in general. So if you've got Christian brothers and sisters that go to other churches, we're including them in this conversation this morning. And the oneness that you have with the church is the factor that is used by the world to judge the authenticity of whether or not Jesus was sent by God the Father. Our oneness becomes the crucial linchpin of people seeing Jesus as legit. If that's the case, friends, we need to take oneness very seriously. And when we don't, we dump toxic chemicals into the building ground of God's church. Now, the good news is, God has given us a way for us to be able to learn how to remain one. And what I was really Oh, my Southern Californianness was about to say stoked. What I, what I was really excited to stumble across was a passage that I felt like I knew very well. I was really familiar with it, but I had never seen it as it related to oneness until preparing for this message. And this is what I want to share with you. So we're going to work the rest of our time in Philippians chapter 4. If you have one of these Bibles, that's on page 982. Our church um, has a tradition of standing in order to honor God's word. And so for our main passage today, I'm going to have you stand and we will read it. I will read it. <clears throat> and you can follow along in the text. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 4. And we're going to start in verse 2, going through verse 7. I entreat you, Odia. I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement 
and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. God, help us to understand this text and to honor you with acting it out. Amen. You can be seated. So, a um, little known tidbit of trivia. I used to be a paid pastor um, before I left paid ministry. And one of, the, one of the things, the jokes that pastors tell each other that they never actually tell the people of their church um, is, uh, and, and you'll see why, is that they say, you know, run, running a church, being a pastor is great if it wasn't for all the people, right? And you could say that for just about anything. It's not just pastors and churches. Um, you know, the government would be a fantastic thing if it weren't for all the people, or et cetera, et cetera. You see, the church has had the same problem since its beginning. It's that it's made up of people, right? People are broken. People don't work correctly. And sometimes, because they're so broken, it causes conflict even within what should be the kingdom of God on earth, the church. Even within that church, that conflict runs the risk of placing doubt on the authenticity of who Jesus is and what he was all about. And sometimes those problems, I mean, think about this, how embarrassing this could even be. Sometimes these problems rise to a significant level of notice. Imagine your problem with your brother or sister in Christ being so significant that in a letter that is known as the epistle of joy, the writer of the letter, Paul, stops and goes, I got to talk about this one disagreement that's happening in your church. And that, that one letter was probably not only passed around within that church, but all the Christians in that town and probably all the surrounding towns. And here we are a couple thousand years later still talking about the problem that was happening between two people. And furthermore, we don't even know a dang thing about these people other than they weren't getting along. And it was so bad that Paul had to address it. Look at the text that's here, verse 2. The word that, that Paul uses there, I beg you, I beg you, Yodia, I beg you, Syntyche, be of the same mind. The word that he uses there means to set your mind on being in harmony in the Lord. Imagine this disagreement being so bad that the letter writer is telling everybody your business. Your standard response would probably be, mind your own business, Paul. We... And Paul would respond by saying, I, I am. The health of the entire Philippian church depends on your ability to set your mind on the intention of being in harmony with one another. Paul was was recognizing this as such a significant thing because Jesus taught exactly this. I don't know if you've noticed it in the passage before, but when Jesus talks about, in the Sermon on the Mount, talks about um, avoiding murder, most of us, I mean, right, you go out the door, are you going to go to heaven? Most people will be like, yeah, why? Well, I haven't killed anybody, right? That's the standard that it takes for you to get into heaven. 
But Jesus takes it way beyond that, not just one step beyond, right? First thing he does is he jumps into anger and says he, he needs you to deal with your anger and your contempt. And then he takes it so far to actually say that if you are in the midst of offering your sacrifice on the altar and you realize it pops into your mind, not that you have a problem with someone else, but that there's a possibility that someone else has a problem with you, leave the sacrifice there and go deal with your relationship with your brother. The direct way in which this could work, and I speak 100% with the authority of every leader in this church and will tell you this, that we would much rather these seats have all kinds of empty holes in them because everybody realized, oh my gosh, I got to go deal with this relationship with this brother or sister in Christ and there's only six people in here, we'd be okay with that because the alternative is a room filled with people singing songs that right behind them is a trail of relational wreckage that brings disrepute on our Jesus to whom we're singing. It's unacceptable. We cannot have that. And Jesus taught it that directly. Step out of the worship service and deal with your relationship with somebody else if need be. And Paul carries that on and says that it's such a significant deal. You look at verse 3, Paul even begs the help of somebody else. He says, indeed, I ask you, Genuine, and then the word, the word in ESV is co-worker. He might be specifically using a name of a person named Sizige. We're not entirely sure if that's actually the name of the person or if he's just referring to somebody. Uh, but either way, Paul reaches out to this individual and says, Hey, you are my genuine co-worker. Help them. Why? Because we started on the same team. And we need to help them see that we're still on that same team. Now, every time that I've read this passage before, my brain has kind of put a mental stoppage there and separated it from all the verses that follow. You've probably heard these other verses before. Rejoice and pray and peace of God and things that we're going to talk about. But I had never seen it before as a response to what Paul is pointing out was a major problem for their church. Paul is trying to get them to avoid dumping this toxic waste into the church that Christ was building in Philippi. And he's trying to, to give them an answer to how do we maintain oneness? How do we keep and ensure the grounds that Jesus is building on? How do we keep them free of the disharmony that toxic waste that comes from a lack of oneness. And he's going to suggest to you what I find in here are three ways. I probably say I find in you three ways because I grew up in mostly Baptist churches and all sermons have only three points. So I have to make sure that I have three points, right? But I see in here three things. And interestingly enough, what I saw, at least interesting to me, they all start with R, which I think will help you remember them. The question we're trying to ask is, how do we avoid the toxic waste of disharmony? The first thing Paul says in verse 4 is what? Rejoice. That's the easy R, right? There was only about seven of you said that, so we're going to go back to reminding you that I want you to answer questions. So he actually says to do what? Rejoice. That was so much better. And just in case you're not really good at recognizing the fact that he's going to say it twice, he tells you, hey, I'm going to say this twice. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. 
Now, here's the thing. Some of these words, we've heard them so many times in church, we have a tendency to forget what they mean. I don't know if you even know what rejoice means. I know that for a lot of years in my relationship with God, my sense of what it meant to rejoice, especially when I read a command in Scripture to rejoice, meant that I was supposed to go over somehow in a corner and be like, I'm going to be more happy. I don't know if you've tried that. I have found it to be an ineffective method of happiness. Maybe you have been able to benefit from that. But to rejoice, it has nothing to do with trying to force your own happiness. To rejoice means nothing about trying to fake being the super-duper positive person that walks into your workplace in the morning, right? And and when they're talking, there are sparrows around. It's like talking to Snow White, right? And they're doing... I'm not saying that you even have to be that. What does it actually mean? Rejoice, kairate. Here's what I would, based on the study that I have made of this word this week, I would say that the easiest way to understand it is to intentionally direct our thinking, not to the problem, but to the ways in which God's grace has been shown in our lives in all moments leading up to facing that problem. When you find yourself facing some type of a lack of harmony with your brothers and sisters in Christ, I encourage you to recognize that Paul's first statement to you is to rejoice. And by rejoice, he means stop, stop, pull yourself out of the problem, disconnect for a moment, and think about the grace that has filled your life up to this moment. And I encourage you to start doing that, right? It'll it'll be initially when you first start, probably the best thing you'll be able to come up with is, well, God forgave me for my sins. And that's a great place to start. But I encourage you, the more that you do this, the better you'll get at it till you start finding so many things to take true joy in because of these little micro graces that you have experienced. Think about taste buds. Why do they exist? I don't know. They're trying to make us eat sugar all the time, which scientists tell us is bad for us. But the bottom line is, you and I get to enjoy food. My friends, that is a grace of God. He could have easily made it such that we ate this bland mush that we didn't taste and just implanted into us that we had to eat the bland mush in order to survive. Instead, he allowed us to enjoy food. It's a micro grace. But you start to build upon that more and more, seeing the ways in which God has allowed you to experience cool breezes, the smiles of an infant, which just light up your soul, the the little joys of, I drive a manual transmission car. Man, this week, there was a moment, and this is just how weird I am, but there was a moment where I did a perfect downshift. Perfect perfectly matched synchros, the braking was, it was just, it was a beauty, a thing of beauty, I tell you. <laughs> but the fact is, I don't need a car. I, God has every right to say, Brad, walk everywhere you go. And not only that, Brad, uh, I'm going to only give you one, way, one leg, and you can hobble everywhere, and you can still figure out a way to praise me. These micro graces abound. Why are we doing this? Because when we choose to see ourselves as recipients of grace, 
This affects our ability to extend it to others. When you realize how much grace you have experienced, it becomes all the more easy for you to extend it to somebody else. So first, to avoid the toxic waste of disharmony, we rejoice. We become aware of the grace that has been a part of our lives. Second, we become, according to verse 5, reasonable. Look at verse 5. The reasonableness of all of you, let it be known to all men, for the Lord is near. We become reasonable. And when I looked at that word and studied it, I I was immediately brought upon a concept that I very much understood from the perspective as a law enforcement officer. The, The text that I read there is becoming a spirit of the law type of person. The easiest way for you to understand in law enforcement the difference between letter of the law and spirit of the law is also conveniently the place where you will probably most, most likely interact with a police officer, and this is as a traffic stop because you were speeding, okay? Most likely, that's, that will be your interaction with a police officer at some point in your life. And when you think about speeding, can I tell you, I've already told you an insight about being into a pastor. Let me tell you an insight about being into a law enforcement officer. The most annoying thing... When I'm driving a patrol car, and, and part of the reason is I get to be able to say this because I don't have to do a lot of traffic enforcement anymore based on my, my role for the department, but the most annoying thing is being in a patrol car and I'm trying to get somewhere and you notice me in your rear view mirror and your knuckles become white and you can see, you could actually see the twitching of the vehicle <laughs> because you're so ner- and you start driving like... 39 in a 45, a street that you typically would drive a normal human speed on, but instead you think that the moment that you go 46 in a 45 and be like, well, I don't got anything better to do, whoop, and I'm going to pull you over and you're going to get a ticket. Let me just give you a heads up. You will never get a ticket for going 46 in a 45. It's not going to happen. And if you do, there are multiple judges that go to this, uh, that go to this church, and you can ask them. Even if you do go, they will laugh at the officer that wrote a ticket for you going 46 in a 45. Drive like a normal human, okay? Just drive normal. We'll be fine. Now... <laughs> Now I say that, <laughs> yeah, apparently, yes, that is what Brad said. And, and the moment one of you throws my name out, <laughs> I will hunt you down. <laughs> Here's the point. The reason is that, that you're not going to get written a ticket for going 46 and a 45, because though that is a violation of maybe the letter of the law, it's not the spirit behind the law. It's not the reason for which we have the law. We have the law so that we can have something that we can address when some bonehead decides to go 67 in a 45. Okay, now we've got an issue, right? You're going to do some damage to society. We need a law. You're not going to do damage to society if we've said going 45 is safe, but going 46 is going to kill somebody. That's not the reality. And being a letter of the law person will say, well, no, the 46, that's a violation of the law and you need to pay. No, 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 no. What Paul is encouraging for not just law enforcement officers, but everybody in the room, is that we become spirit of the law type of people. 
You see, if you're a letter of the law person, when you come into conflict with a brother or sister in Christ, you will obviously see the clear fault. But the Spirit looks for the heart of the matter. The Spirit of the law person finds it more difficult to judge people because the Spirit of the law person sees the same failure-prone individual in himself as he sees in the person standing in front of him. Now notice, as if that wasn't enough, notice who's near. The Lord is near. Now I want you, as if that wasn't enough of an understanding, now I want you to imagine yourself in conflict with somebody that has significantly wronged you, and you're standing next to Jesus, who since you were a fetus, knows every bad thought, every angry word, every negative action, every law you've broken that you got away with, everything you've possibly done in your entire life, and not only does he still love you, he still likes you. That I don't understand, right? As a parent, I can love my children when they're driving me nuts. I can still provide them food, clothing, and shelter and avoid killing them. I can still show them love, but I don't always like them. But Jesus knows the depth of who you are as an individual, knows every single broken portion of you. And not only does he love you, he likes you. How easy is it then, with him standing next to you, with that kind of knowledge of who you are, how easy is it for you to look at somebody else and turn to Jesus and be like, yeah, we hate this guy, don't we? Can't do it. You can't, it's not fair. I guarantee you, whatever it is that that person did to you, it's probably not as bad as the things that you've done to other people in your mind that Jesus knows about. The Lord being near is an encouragement for you to recognize your need for being a reasonable, spirit-of-the-law type of person. First, we avoid dumping toxic toxic waste into the church building grounds by rejoicing. Secondly, we avoid toxic waste by acting as reasonable spirit-of-the-law people who remember how they were forgiven. Third, we rest. Look at verse 6. The emphasis on the words in Greek here, the first words of the text actually are over nothing. Over nothing should you have anxiety. But instead, in all things, how many things? In all things, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, everything that you ask for, let it be known to God. You see, to avoid dumping toxic waste of disharmony into the the building grounds for the church, we have to recognize that our disharmony with others often stems from our own internal disharmony. Notice the first thing that Paul points out here, anxiety. You probably don't need me to tell you the statistics on anxiety, though I will. One in five people currently it's estimated, have a, have a diagnosable level of anxiety. 
Now, I'm not talking about one in five people like would be nervous if it was their job to speak in front of this group. I'm talking one in five people currently are walking around with, with a level of anxiety so high that people would say generally that it would be right for you to have t- some type of prescription medication, some type of professional help. That means in this room, there's a significant portion of people with that level of anxiety. They walk among us. Maybe you are that person. I want you to explore this idea of anxiety here. The word that's here, that is translated anxiety, means having a division of mind, that your mind is in too many different directions. Think about it. Have you ever, like, found yourself in a conversation with a person and you realize that they've been talking for 20 seconds and you've been completely checked out because you've been thinking about something else? Your mind is not on that person, but on something else. We are surrounded, we are bombarded by things that call for our attention. I'm not saying that they're all bad. Some of them are very good things, but we have a variety of things pulling our mind in every single type of direction. And instead of training ourselves as a society how to deal with that, we have celebrated the multitasker, right? When somebody has a multitasking ability, we look at this person as a virtuous individual in our society from whom we should all learn. I don't mean to denigrate you if you are a fantastic multitasker. But one of my friends who's not a good multitasker, I recently just started telling her when she's multitasking, every time I see her doing it, and she'll be standing there as though she's part of our conversation, but she's looking at her phone at the same time, I'll just say to her, hey, she's multitasking again. You remember that means you're just doing almost everything poorly, right? Because that's what multitasking is. Instead of doing one thing well, you're just doing everything poorly. As a result, this is not just here, I'm not here to beat you down on, on multitasking, but as a result, we seem to lack the ability to focus, right? And instead of trying to address the problem, we continue to just add practices that further distract us from the discomfort that we're experiencing because where our mind is going in all kinds of different directions. And now our souls are spinning in so many different directions that we can't sit calmly and just think about one thing for a little while. They're even, it's gotten so bad that even the public school system has decided to try to take this upon themselves, and they're teaching what they refer to as mindfulness in the public schools. Now, I'm not going to try to tell you that mindfulness is all bad, because I truly believe that it's not all bad. Maybe some of you could probably benefit from sitting in a room quietly for 10 minutes and just listening to your own breathing. That's not a bad thing. It would probably be good to calm you down. However, the world doesn't know how to wield this practice well. They incorporate an Eastern meditative type of response to it. And I would encourage you, extract what you can, the the good stuff from it. But instead, Paul gives us a better solution. Instead of turning to this practice, what we would at least at minimum want to add to it or do instead, look look at the encouragement from Paul. Have anxiety over nothing, but instead in how many things? Just want to be clear That's all things good, all things bad, all things neutral, all things, all things, all things, all things, all 
things. In all things, where do we start? Prayer. Now, prayer may be a word that doesn't mean a whole lot to you anymore because you've heard it a thousand times at church. Let me, let me try to share with you a very simple, simple definition of prayer. You remember just one verse ago, the Lord is near? Prayer just means talking, talking to him. Keeping that conversation open, keeping it going. Having that conversation with the God who is near you. Telling him how you're feeling. Looking for the ways in which he's working. Turning this inner conversation toward God. I'm not saying that you have to do it out loud if you're like all afraid of, you know, being the crazy guy on the street, like talking to somebody uh, like over his shoulder that no one can see. I'm not saying you have to do that at all. You can do this all internally. But keep that conversation going. And as you have that conversation going, what you will naturally first come across is supplication. Now, that was a word that was a million-dollar word that I had no idea what that meant. I just thought it was another word for prayer. And as I dove into it a little bit deeper, what I found that supplication means is expressing your desires due to recognizing your own need. What supplication means is that once you have started that conversation with God, you're going to pretty quickly stumble across your own brokenness, your own holes, your own problems. And that's okay. Paul is telling us that that's okay. You're going to come face to face with your insufficiency. That's okay. We're turning that towards God, recognizing that that is a hole that we have. But we're doing that with what? Thanksgiving. Now, this is one of the most difficult practices that we might talk about because we're, we're being thankful in the midst of the difficulty, of the brokenness, of the recognition that I am not complete, that things are not the way that they are supposed to be. And I'm being thankful for it. You know, this morning before our services got together, some of your elders met to pray for you. And one of our elders started his prayer like this. Lord, we thank you for, and then he inserted a giant problem we are currently facing. That elder gets it. But I don't know if we all get it all the time. It's hard sometimes to be thankful for the difficulty. I don't know, maybe if you've even had this, this, uh, this conversation before, maybe with somebody I've heard about it happening often with people that have beaten cancer. And sometimes these people will say to people, I'm so happy this happened to me. That having cancer was the best thing that ever happened to me. And you hear that and go, what? That doesn't make any sense. And yet is it an understanding of a, a deep component that the world has a very hard time understanding that Paul elsewhere has written to us the assurance that all things work together for those who love him, love Jesus, that his purposes are being interwoven in all of the difficulties, in all of the struggles, in all of the brokenness, and we can turn and still be thankful that God is using those things to accomplish his mission both in our life and in the kingdom. but I don't want you to stop where I would always stop. 
when you look at this verse. I would stop with these concepts of rejoicing, these concepts of being reasonable, these concepts of of praying and supplicating and being thankful, and think about them as concepts that I do specifically. But you are missing, and I was missing, how plural the words are that follow this. And all of the things, it would be best translated this way, and all of the things that you all are asking for, let them be known to God. That this is done together. The asking is a plural description. And I want you to remember that we're seeing this in light of what do we do when we're in conflict with one another? How easy is it for you to fight with someone that you're praying with? Can't do it. Just going to argue you can't do it. You can't fight with someone that you're praying with, that you're in the midst of praying with. So in a world whose mind is divided by anxiety, we rest by placing ourselves and our relationships into the hands of God. And look what happens as a result. Verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all minds, which surpasses all understanding, will guard all of your hearts and the things you're thinking about through Christ Jesus. The Jews have this word that they still use to this day. Maybe you've heard it before, shalom. And it's weakly and anemically uh, translated into our language as peace. But it means so much more. You you don't even have to look even farther than the the vast uh, educational source of Wikipedia when you look up shalom to realize that it means way more than peace. Instead, it means, it's a word meaning harmony, wholeness completeness, prosperity, welfare, and tranquility. Probably best understood quickly as everything being in its proper place, everything being as it should be. You know, people often talk about rewards from God, right? So if you do this, the God will reward you for it. I wonder if you've ever explored in your mind what it means to be rewarded by God and what that reward would actually look like. I think a lot of the times the world has a tendency to think about it as like some type of financial reward. And what's beautiful about being a part of a church like this, a multi-generational church, is that there are plenty of people in this room that could turn to you today and say that there's no amount of money, no amount of financial security that will bring you happiness and joy. It just can't be done. It can't be done. So how do we get it? How do we get that wholeness, that harmony, that completeness? How do we get that sense that everything is in its proper place? I would argue that there's no greater reward than the unity of mind and rest that comes from knowing that you are fully known. In all of your fragility, all of your failures, all of your darkness, you are fully known and yet fully loved. And as a result, you don't have to prove anything to anyone because all things in Christ have already been made whole and complete. It's beautiful. That's shalom, a ceasing from striving. You don't have to worry about proving yourself to anyone. You don't even have to worry about proving yourself to God because he already took that responsibility upon himself. 
accepting you and bringing you in. That's the reward of shalom. Jesus is building his church and he asks us to keep the building grounds pure. And instead of the toxic waste of disharmony, disunity, and disagreement, he wants to be in our midst to bring us peace and wholeness, his shalom. And we allow this by rejoicing, by focusing on his grace. We allow this by being reasonable, spirit of the law thinkers who have been forgiven. We allow this by resting our minds in him through our own prayers and through our community prayers with thanksgiving. We can do this, but remember, we must do this. Because the world's belief in the authenticity of Jesus hangs in the balance of our ability to get along with one another. So in order to do that, as the musicians are coming back up to respond to God through music, I'm going to um, encourage us to go through a small exercise of prayer. It's not as intimidating as it sounds. Typically, when somebody ends a message, um, I would normally pray, you would listen to my prayer, and we would call it praying together. I'm not saying that that's necessarily a problem, but that's not what we're going to do this morning. I think that without Christ's Spirit working in our hearts, trying to live these things out, we will just end up being the person grunting through over in the corner. So instead, what I'm going to do is I'm going to encourage you to pray the same thing that I pray. And we'll do this by you quietly in your mind. I will pray, I will pray a line out loud, and I want you to repeat that line in your head. And then there will be a silence, just a short silence. And I want you, wherever the Spirit may take you, to respond to that line, and however it needs to be in your relationship with God. And then I'll finish by saying amen. Ready? Let's do it. Jesus, we thank you for being with us. This week, show me the ways I have received your grace. This week, show me how much you have forgiven me. This week, help me rest my mind in you. This week in my life, let others see how great you are. Jesus, I thank you for your love. Jesus, be my cornerstone.